Hey, Michelle. Hey, Greg. You know who's awesome? Who? Eastern Script, because they're now a paid advertiser and they're just awesome anyway. Eastern Script has been preparing script clearance reports for almost 30 years and title searches for almost 20 years. From feature-length films to animated shorts, from TV series to webisodes, Eastern Script has got you covered. Go to easternscript.com where you can read their new ebook, Script Clearance 101, to find out why their work has been called the gold standard of legal research in production offices throughout North America. Once again, that's easternscript.com, easternscript.com. Hello and welcome to Legal Cut Pro, the Canadian Entertainment Law Podcast. My name is Michelle Molyneux and my co-host, as always, is Greg Peng. Today's podcast is an interview with Nancy Harwood all about workers' compensation and COVID. You have the best hello of all time. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> Our editor is Jane Toogood, who you can find on Instagram at JJ underscore Toogood. Thank you to Jane for her continuing great work on the pod. Well, let's just get to it. This was a fantastic interview. I finished the interview about, well, about half an hour ago, and we learned a lot of cool little bits about workers' compensation and how it relates to COVID. Awesome. Let's take a listen. Well, hello, Nancy Harwood. Hello, Greg. How are you today? Good. How are you? Thank you for being on the podcast today. I remember we, well, we met, quote unquote, after a CMPA panel where you were on the panel and you spoke about safe production practices. So I thought it would be a really good idea after reading your bio that you could come on this podcast to talk about worker compensation and COVID. I'm very happy to be here and happy to discuss it with you. Perfect. Well, let me first properly introduce you. Okay. Read your bio here. So, Nancy, you are a lawyer with the Harwood Safety Group, and that's out of Vancouver, correct? That's right. We're in the heart of Vancouver. Perfect. Nancy is a lawyer who has unique insights into workplace health and safety, having spent over two decades in the practice of occupational health and safety law. She was a director in the Prevention Division of the Provincial Regulator WorkSafe BC for 15 years. For the last six years, she has led the Harwood Safety Group, a team of experts that assist clients in industry, labor, and associations to achieve excellence in health and safety in workplaces in BC. Nancy's legal services include developing safety programs, training on regulatory requirements, overseeing accidental, or sorry, accident investigations, representing clients in compliance orders and penalty appeals, and conducting bullying and harassment investigations. Throughout her career, Nancy has served on numerous boards and committees dedicated to occupational health and safety, including the most recent as chair of Act Safe, the health and safety association for the entertainment industry in BC. Once again, Nancy, welcome to Legal Cut Pro. Happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about workers' compensation generally, the scheme of workers' compensation in Canada. At a very high level, what is it generally? And just for reference for the listeners, in Alberta, uh, our Workers' Compensation Board is under the Workers' Compensation Act. And depending on where you are in the country, it may be called something that that legislation may be called something else. For example, in Ontario, it's the Workplace Safety and Insurance Act, probably a little more a better description of what the act actually does. But I believe in BC, it's the Workers' Compensation Act as well, Nancy? It is. And um, across Canada, it's some version of workers' compensation and um, safety. 
kind of delineation and kind of act. So yeah, there. But this, the scheme is uh, is similar across the country in, in each province and territory. So what does it do generally? What uh, how does workers' compensation work? You know, it came about in the early part of the last uh, century, like early 1900s. Before about 1910, uh, most workers um, were faced with pretty grim working conditions in, in many industries. And at that time, if they were hurt on the job, the only recourse to them was to sue their employer. And you can imagine how challenging that would be for most workers at that time. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was also challenging for employers because um, they would then have to pay for medical costs of injuries or disease, uh, wage losses, and, and then any and other damages that might have arisen with respect to uh, a lawsuit from, from a worker. So the governments at that time decided they needed a way to provide support to workers um, and at the same time certainty to employers um, so that they would know what their responsibilities were in health and safety, and they would have some certainty about what the payments would be if people were injured. This resulted in the so-called historical compromise, and and the workers' compensation system was born. So just really briefly, the scheme uh, under the historical compromise, uh, workers gave up their rights to sue on their employers for workplace injuries and diseases um, incurred at the workplace. And in exchange, we now have a no-fault insurance system. So that's funded exclusively by employers, not at all by the government, through um, assessments that are levied on employers um, based on the number of workers they have, like their payroll. So now negligence and fault for cause on an injury is, or disease is, are not considerations. It's no fault. And, and then all of these neutral agencies, these worker compensation boards, were created in each of the provinces and territories. Um, and there's legislation, as you mentioned, um, that covers what their responsibilities are. Excellent. And, and I think you answered my next question already, but I'd like to just sure. visit it anyway. Is about protecting businesses. How does workers' compensation protect businesses? Uh, and part of this is, from what I hear, is that workers' compensation, the scheme takes out the, the risk of litigation, out of the, the freewheeling civil litigation space, and instead brings it in into this no-fault insurance, I don't know sure. what the word scheme, but yes, uh, structure. exactly. So if we take, for example, film produ- productions um, in BC, in any way, most people that are going to be working on a film are considered workers um, for compensation purposes and health and safety purposes too. So a production has to pay assessments, as I mentioned, to the Workers' Compensation Board here. Um, and that's based on a calculation of the payroll and a factor that represents the degree of risk of injury in that particular industry. So you can imagine in construction, that risk factor is higher. Um, fishing and um, forestry, those, those assessments are going to be a lot higher than in an office setting or even on a film production. So when a worker is, if a worker is in, injured, I should say, as you said, the production can't be sued. But the worker can now make a claim to WCB, a board, and all their wage losses, uh, medical um, costs, and any rehabilitation costs are covered through the board. So the production's from that point completely off the hook um, for any other costs, just the cost of their assessments. Now, 
I should say that if a production has a really poor injury rate record, it could be that their assessments will increase. So they might incur additional costs if they, if they really um, have a bad record. When cost, do you mean like premiums or something like that? that? That's or exactly what? right, Greg. We call them assessments, but they are basically, yeah, your, hmm. the yearly premiums based on payroll and that risk factor I mentioned. Let's talk about occupational diseases next. And uh, for the listener, occupational diseases in, in air quotes is a defined term under, I believe, most uh, workers' compensation mm. legislation uh, across Alberta, or sorry, across Canada. It is a defined, uh, defined term in the BC legislation as well as the Alberta legislation and mm-hmm. the Ontario one. I did look it up. And this is, of course, relevant to our conversation about covid under what conditions, and I know there have been amendments, there were amendments earlier this year after COVID hit uh, to BC's legislation, uh, under what conditions might a uh, quote-unquote worker, and worker itself is right. also a defined term under the, um, the workers' compensation legislation, would, they, would, this, would a worker be able to receive workers' comp because that worker was infected with COVID-19 um, on set? Like, let's bring it right to the industry now, on set. Well, that's a really good question and obviously a very timely and relevant um, issue. So like any other claim for an injury or disease, uh, the, the, the compensation board would look at whether the COVID that the worker contracted was work-related, and they'll determine this on a case-by-case basis. And now, as you mentioned, uh, certain amendments have been brought in, um, and, and if, if not by amendment, then I think uh, most boards would use these criteria in, in any event. And so when they're looking at a claim for COVID, boards will look at two conditions that would have to be met for the claim to be successful. So they'd be looking for evidence, uh, first of all, that there's a medical diagnosis, like contained in a medical report from a um, qualified practitioner, or that there's non-medical evidence, um, which otherwise does establish the existence of COVID. So obviously, there has to be proof of the condition. And then really importantly, the nature of the worker's employment has to have created, and I'll quote here, a risk of contracting the disease significantly greater than the ordinary exposure risk of the public at large. And I think that that terminology is pretty much the same across the board in terms of how the adjudication of these claims would be done. Just by way of example, a clear work-related case would be an acute care hospital worker Mm -hmm. who's treating patients and obviously by the nature of their work is going to have an exposure greater than the public at large. So we'll see, you know, you'd see cases of contracting the disease covered by workers' compensation in, in cases like that. And, you know, there might also be cases where that might not be so obvious, but so-called non-essential workers might be covered. If there was a wide outbreak, let's say, of COVID at the workplace, and um, you may uh, ever I think you saw this in Alberta, and we saw this in Vancouver as well, where there was a significant outbreak at a meatpacking plant uh, yes. um, a number of months ago. And um, I know that you guys had some fatalities out That's of right, that, yeah. unfortunately. There's no doubt that uh, those claims would be accepted because there was a significant outbreak and anyone obviously going to work was you know, more exposed because of that outbreak than anybody in the, in the regular public, so to speak. And with respect to uh, just bringing it right to the film industry. Sure. So absent like a, a wide outbreak, if it's just like a one-off, let's say one or two people get uh, 
get infected with COVID yep. while, while working on set or in the production office, and, and it stops there. But you know, through contract tracing, then they find out, yeah, it, it was through, it was contracted on set. Let's say, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't seem like it meets the threshold. You'd be right about that. Uh, like I said, every claim is going to be looked at on a case by case basis, mm-hmm. but you know that scenario that you state um i i doesn't it doesn't sound like it would be and like in looking at um productions in particular i i looked at some of the um the claims data that we have here in bc as to accepted claims and disallowed claims just to see if we could get an idea of like where where are things coming from and what's being accepted and what's not so just quickly to november 17th here in bc there's been about 1,700 claims for COVID made with uh, WorkSafe BC. 530 of those have been accepted. And I have to say the, ma- the very vast majority of those were in healthcare and social services sectors. So as I mentioned, acute care, long-term care, community service care. And then some f- 748 of those 1,700 claims have been disallowed. And then the rest are pending or suspended. The data shows that there's been eight registered claims from the motion picture industry here oh. in BC. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, but there's no indication. Um, they don't indicate whether or not those have been accepted. The data also shows that there haven't been any instances of more than five claims at a time coming from a motion picture production or a production here. So there hasn't obviously been then what we call sort of a significant outbreak. So, I would say in the absence um, of an outbreak, as you said, in that scenario um, where I don't think five is necessarily the magic number, but, you know, they're sort of relying on five or more. Claims for COVID probably wouldn't be accepted for workers on productions generally, because again, workers exposure on a production would really not be significantly greater than the ordinary exposure that they would receive in the public at large. So it's so hard to determine, you know, where someone um, actually contracted the, the disease. So, um, yeah, I would say productions would, would hopefully not have an outbreak and therefore there would be very few claims that would be accepted. Just to clarify, and I know we spoke off pod about this, sure. that if the claimant, the worker were to make a claim, but then it were not to meet those conditions um, under the legislation or under whatever guidelines or regulations um, under the workers' compensation legislation, then they cannot, still cannot sue the employer. That's right. Yeah, we'll go back to the historical compromise. I mean, right. clearly they would receive uh, medical care um, under the, you know, the uh, public health system, but um, it wouldn't be work-related and the employer would be immune from um, any kind of lawsuits for, for COVID-related illnesses in the workplace. And for just for clarification for the listener, because a worker is something we haven't discussed, mm-hmm. the and we don't, uh, you know, it's a, there could be a long discussion on this, but worker doesn't just necessarily just mean like a labor or something like that. It's like an employee, uh, contractor. Um, it could be a subcontractor, depending. But uh, it, it's a, a relatively broad definition. Is is that right? Absolutely. There's a there's a very few exceptions, and that would be a labor contractor, or at least in BC, and that means someone who brings um, on their own equipment and uses it, and they may have other contracts. But typically, on a production. Most of the people working on the production are working there full time and they would be considered employees. And in BC, there's special provision where generally all people working on a production, the production's the employer and they're all workers. And so there's specific 
um, assessment policy that that makes that clear that all people, subcontractors, contractors are workers under under the Workers' Compensation Act. I think producers have to be mindful that you know there there is a limited scope then, and it only applies to to workers or what are deemed workers under the Act. And it doesn't apply, say you're on a uh, documentary shoot and, uh, shoot, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're on a documentary shoot, and of course you have your, your crew, which would be considered, they would be considered workers, it would not compl- apply to, say, a subject of a documentary who is bit there being interviewed or, or whatnot. And let's say if boom mic holder guy, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it drops, the, it drops it on that person's, uh, the, the subject of the documentary's head or the person being interviewed, and they, they uh, split their uh, skull open. I mean, they would not, that person would, I'm, I'm going to guess that would likely not be considered a worker, would not be covered under workers' compensation and would seek remedies or uh, a claim elsewhere outside of the um, the workers' compensation scheme. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, if they're not receiving any compensation for, um, you know, participating in the documentary, then, you know, they wouldn't be workers. And yeah, they, they could look to other avenues um, for redress. And that's, uh, that could be a tricky one, because sometimes a, a, a participant could receive some kind of uh, a you know, payment consideration, like a, an honorarium or something mm-hmm. like that. So, so th- this has to be worked on on a case by case basis. Are you deemed a worker then, uh, if you are receiving money to participate? Absolutely, and and WorkSafe would look at those on a case by case basis. On one person's honorarium might look like another person's wage. So, yeah, they they definitely would consider whether or not there was um, so called compensation for for the um, the work that they were doing. I'd just like to just address something because insurance has been a, and we spoke a little bit about this, Nancy, uh, before recording Mm -hmm. uh, the other day. It's about the general insurance, the industry insurance question. And there is a a short-term compensation fund that's administered by Telefilm, which is insurance against COVID-related delays or stoppages in production. But that is about the production itself. What we're talking about is not about production, but about workers, who might get you know, injured or, or infected by an uh, quote-unquote occupational disease. So that's a completely separate thing. So just, just for the listener, you know that that's a separate issue and it's being addressed at a different level. So we're talking specifically about workers' compensation. That's right. But, you know, you bring up a good point about the non-worker onset. I mean, the production needs to consider those people as well, um, and maybe the public who might interface in some way with the set and, you know, and determine what insurance provisions might be available to cover those kind of um, losses that might be incurred if there are lawsuits or uh, other kind of claims. Absolutely. And and usually a producer would carry some kind of production insurance to cover those kind of um, those kinds of claims. And so that we don't don't have to go straight to march right into, you know, the court of Queen's bench or something like that and spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on. That's right. We want to avoid that at all costs. Exactly. It's not the court of Queen's bench over there, right? It's you're, you're the Supreme court of BC. That's that's your, it is. Uh, now, I am originally from Manitoba, which is another queen. They call it the Queen's Bench. And mm-hmm. I, I had a lot of trouble just keep changing that to Supreme yes. Court when I came to this well, When I was practicing in Ontario, it was, it's the Superior Court mm. of Ontario. And then I had to uh, you know, relearn, okay, no, QB is the Superior Court level. And now, having been 10 years back here, now I'm finally you know, fully... Uh, <laughs> integrated. You know, yeah, yeah, integrated. <laughs> but then there was talk just a little while ago about changing that. Because some people oh. say, you know, it's too colonialistic or, or whatnot, and we should ch- t- change away to 
Queen's Bench. Versus, right. Because what if Charles becomes king? Now it's going to be called the King's Bench, right? Queen's, King's Bench. <laughs> just I've get been rid of the, the bench. Just, just get rid of it. Make there it a court. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually been watching The Crown uh, lately, the season very four popular. of The Crown. Yeah, yes, and, very uh, and so this is top of mind right now. It's like, what if Charles becomes king? <laughs> oh, I think she's going to outlive him. I, I, I think uh, Queen Elizabeth is just going to keep going on forever. I've heard that many times as well. It's like <laughs> Queenie too is, uh, she'll just keep living forever, yeah, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're all hoping. All right, Nancy, so where can people find you? Well, okay. Um, they can find me first on the website that we have, which is www.harwoodsafetygroup.com. Or you can give us a call at 778-689-2644. And uh, we're happy to answer really any of your occupational health and safety questions. Um, we've been working a lot with the um, motion picture and other words of the film industry here in um, BC and um, helping them, you know, get their COVID plans in place. So that's been a big part of the stuff we've been working on lately. Well, thank you very much, Nancy. Well, thanks so much for having me. Legal Cut Pro has been produced by Greg Pang and Michelle Molyneux. Excerpts of Just Say Go, Dr. Octavio Mendesity, mixed courtesy of Dr. Octavio and Michelle Molyneux. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated on it is to be construed as legal advice. The views expressed by the hosts of Legal Cut Pro and any guests are their own and do not represent the opinions of any organization or other person unless otherwise stated. Intro sound clip film projector countdown has been truncated from its original form and is copyright 2013 Ivan Gabovich used under creative commons by 3 license outro sound clip film projector reel runs out by stefan021 is used under creative commons cc01.0 license this podcast is copyright of red frame law and is licensed to you under creative commons attribution non-commercial cc by nc 4.0 license for details of that license visit creativecommons.org